Welcome to the Profaned Ordained Podcast. I'm Liz. And I'm Michael. Welcome, everyone. I think it's appropriate to let you know what Liz and I are drinking this uh, for this episode. And this was my brainchild. Yes. The recipe. Liz, will you go ahead and describe this drink for us? Okay, so here's the story. It is made up of freshly picked blackberries that mm-hmm. we picked by hand yep. by headlamp. Actually, you're right. And freshly squeezed lemon juice. Mm-hmm. Again, I squeezed by hand. From raised produce. Well, the recipe said that we were to use six lemons and then three ounces of vodka. And I was like, what are you trying to make? Like, like in a, a pitcher. A Mike's hard lemonade with tap <laughs> water run into it. Basically. Um, so it's pretty tasty. I added about three ounces of vodka per drink. So it's basically a blackberry lemonade. Uh, vodka lemonade. Yeah. So here's Which is a simple syrup that we also made oh ourselves. Yes. We made our own simple syrup. We've come a long way, babe. Well, you know what? There is a an ingredient that we didn't make though, which actually grosses me out. When okay, I... so there I was um, okay. prepping for the episode, sipping my vodka lemonade, and there was what appeared to be a seed floating at the top. So it's blackberries. It's natural. Yeah, that makes sense. I was like, it was a large seed. I didn't know what I was dealing with. It was smaller than a lemon seed. Anyway, I pull it out it's on the tip of my finger i'm taking it to the sink and the little shit starts to unfold and i kid you not it was a spider it's disgusting that must have been on the blackberry a blackberry in my drink i rinsed the blackberries well but that thing just started unfolding kind of like every alien movie that you've ever seen where like the people wander into the abandon alien cave or ship and then they do something stupid and next thing you know the aliens are coming out of their cocoons that's what was happening on my fingertip yeah and it makes it really difficult for me in particular looking at my glass like what's going to float to the top well if it hasn't floated to the top yet it's probably probably drowned yeah so anyway that's a little recipe it's pretty tasty and i'm really proud of it it's it's very good homegrown my teeth are already hurting so um liz let's maybe jump in with a check-in yeah i'll lead off i think you let off last time i put you on the spot so i'll go this time and i'll put myself on the spot uh i'm gonna check in uh with a lot of anger uh fear and joy uh checking in with those emotions anger it's just been really hard with the kids I'm exhausted. Parenting. Uh, And I feel my boundaries have been absolutely obliterated. I can't even tell you how maddening it is with David right now. I mean, oh my God. Every (laughs) time I try to do a damn thing, he wants to do the opposite thing. I wish I could, like, honestly paint a picture of the the meltdown that that surrounded the SpongeBob popsicles tonight. Oh my God. And, like, just, like, on cue, they start melting. Because it's 102 degrees out. What were we thinking? Because all he wanted was to pluck out the bubblegum eyeballs. Of the SpongeBob popsicle. Yeah. Right? So. I had... He needed to wash his hands because they were completely covered. Mm-hmm. I had him uh, body checked up against the sink <laughs> with with my pelvic region <laughs> using my two hands to wash both of his hands while he's just screaming he's just at me. just screaming. 
Um, it was a cluster cuss. Mm-hmm. Um, so anger. Your, anger. your boundaries have been violated. Fear. I don't know. Just always afraid about everything. Everything's fearful right now. And then joy. I think maybe one of the last episodes I mentioned I was potentially getting on medication. And hmm. I did. Yeah. And I feel like it's, uh, it's a medication that I've taken before. And I feel like it's already uh, paying off. Hmm. Um, I just feel like more present. I feel like the water level has risen within. Yeah. And I feel that too. Do you? Yeah, I do. Thanks for that reflection in a public space. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you the same reflection privately. Okay. <laughs> okay <great. laughs> That's inappropriate. <laughs> All right. Liz. Uh, okay. Uh, what am I checking in with? I have felt... Um, the last two weeks just kind of depressed so tonight I'd probably be checking in with fear and anger and sadness and maybe a little bit of joy it really actually feels like numbness more than anything else Um, low energy I described it earlier today when we were talking about it like a low grade fever so it's actually really good to be here and to be drinking this drink with you. Um, yeah, I think there's some delight in that, but it's been it's been a rough couple of weeks. So, yeah, I normally feel pretty flat and numb, to be honest, and so to name an emotion. I could, I could tie stories to all of those emotions in one way or another. So, yeah, I'm just here right yeah. now. That's, That's enough. Good. That's enough. That is enough. That's enough. So uh, this episode, uh, we're going to maybe take a journey within a little bit, right? Journey mm-hmm. to the center of the earth. To with, the center of the soul. Uh, what, who's the guy? Nick uh, Brandon Frazier. Uh, Frazier. 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 Hardly know. Anyway. I said Nick Cage. You shouldn't my... do that. You don't know him that well. <laughs> Nicholas. And that, that's not him. It was Brendan Frazier. <laughs> Brendan Frazier and Nicholas the Cage. Chager. Um, <laughs> it rhymes. That was dumb. Okay. Well, Liz has already had her drink, no, uh, by the true. way. Hers is almost gone. Okay. So um, I think this conversation kind of uh, springs out of what has been a collective, I would say, is a collective loneliness that mm. we've all been in for what a what feels to be years Forever. and soon will be plural yeah. in terms of the number of years uh, and how do we navigate it because uh, we've been kind of thrown into this polarity of either like deep deep loneliness or an isolation um, or when we've had respites around COVID i.e. what we're kind of coming out of uh, is this time where we've been able to see friends and kind of returned a sense of normalcy mm. where I don't know about I felt like I've just been able to be around more people mm. and I feel my cup is filled up but then I've kind of forgotten how to connect within mm. because now I'm with all these people and I I feel very externally focused I'm like I don't even know how to connect back that's actually super ironic I'm having the exact opposite oh, really? experience do, yeah do tell do tell yeah I don't know I feel like in the space of this collective loneliness, like a desire to be alone. Hmm. Like I feel Mm -hmm. really uh, strangely recharged from like, man, I just need to get 
away and process my own internal world. Um, and so seeing people is, it's good, like I need it, but I think there's a sense of, yeah, a, a strong desire to connect back to myself. And so I've been doing a lot of things alone, actually. Do you feel like it's easy, like you feel in this season, it's easier to connect inter- within yourself? Yeah, I think, oh, wow. well, I would describe myself as an extrovert, meaning that my orientation toward the world is typically outside of myself. And yet, you know, being in a place where we've kind of been starved of that in one way or another for a, a long period of time, my bandwidth, my bandwidth for extroversion is actually pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, man, this used to be like, I don't know, super life-giving to be mm-hmm. around people and like get crazy and be weird and silly. And now I'm like, man, I have a very limited capacity for that. And I'm just longing for space to go be alone. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. Yeah. So maybe it's not that different than what you're describing. Well, it is. I, I can't really put my finger on why it's different. I don't want to be with other people, and I don't want to be with myself. <laughs> um, I see. I would rather um, just do real repetitive work mm. uh, that you know feels like I'm accomplishing something, but meanwhile, um, nothing is happening. Or you know, mm. mindlessly Instagram scrolling. I don't want to do that. That is my go-to. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, I think I think everyone experiences it different, right? There's not a there's not a, a binary of extrovert this introvert. Or that. Totally. Uh, did I say that right? Extrovert mm. and introvert. Nicholas, <laughs> Cager. Um, <laughs> you get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but I but I think I think that there is still uh, maybe more than ever some language that's needed, some new wine, so to speak, in uh, old, these old wine skins of how do we connect within yeah. um, when certain rhythms have been taken out um, or those rhythms we've tried to connect. I went on my first retreat uh, in like yeah. a year and a half, and it was uh, surprisingly lackluster. Hmm. Um, I've arrived in that space and just absolutely wept for 30 minutes yeah. before. And this time it was like, okay, I'm here. This is good. Like... I'm able to be here, but those rhythms just kind of feel a little bit just like, huh? I don't know. So I, I, I think this whole conversation is precipitated by a need for maybe some new language. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, read this quote from uh, Carl Jung. He says, when you welcome a stranger, someone who is strange, you welcome Jesus. When you clothe someone who is naked, you clothe Jesus. What I do not understand, however, is that Christians never seem to recognize Jesus in their own poverty. You always want to do uh, to the poor outside of you, and at the same time, you deny the poor person living inside of you. Why can't you see Jesus in your own poverty, in your own hunger and thirst? In all that is strange inside you. Mm. In the violence and anguish that are beyond your control. Mm. You are called to welcome all this. Not to deny its existence, but to accept that it is there. Mm. And to meet Jesus there. Mm. I think this was maybe one of the first Carl Jung quotes 
before I really knew who Carl Jung was, before he became really an elder, a, a written elder for me, um, I read him in another book, uh, read this quote in another book, and uh, the strangeness within mm-hmm. is normal to me now, but I think it there was a time when it was incredibly novel and uh, paradigm shifting to imagine that there were strange parts of myself hmm. that perhaps needed attention, yeah. that were perhaps hungry, that were perhaps thirsty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and that there was relationship maybe possible with these parts. That internally yeah. strange. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, as you were reading, it took me back to... Um, well, I've been thinking lately about how uh, when we're parenting, that's such a weird thing to say. On nights when things are bad with our parentalizing. kids, where when we're parentalizing and things are not going well, oftentimes there's this moment where you say to Bina, "I think you're hungry. I think mm-hmm. there's something underneath what's happening, mm-hmm. like physically. Yeah, hungry, you're like hungry. hungry. Like she's like actually hungry, and then we give her." A little bit of food, and somehow everything's fine. And she'll say, I think I was hungry. (laughs) We've all been there. Okay. Yes. And I was thinking about that because actually that's been, that's a metaphor for me for my relationship with grief. Mm -hmm. So I'll like have these moments where something is happening on the surface, but it's not about that thing. It's not really about what's happening on the surface. If I get under it, if I peel it back all the way down to the strangeness, Mm Actually, there's a lot of sadness mm-hmm. that I need to actually connect with. Mm-hmm. And I've been realizing it more and more, I think, as I, um, with COVID on the rise, have been going to the sauna a lot more often because mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> freaked out that it's going to close down again yeah. for 15 months. And I realized that in that embodied space for me, it actually allows me to peel back the layers and get to that strangeness, mm-hmm. figure out like what, what needs to be befriended Mm. inside of me because I've been pushing things away and it's not about the hunger. There's something underneath it, right? Um, Hunger, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. right? So I think, yeah, as you were reading that, I was thinking about like, what is the strangeness in me that seems to be informing how I'm behaving in the world? And if I were in right relationship with that strangeness, how would it inform how I live and how I relate to people? Uh, so I'm curious, we were talking about this before the episode, before we recorded about the kind of the difference between you and I and how we connect. Mm-hmm. You talk about the sauna. Yeah. And uh, how for you connecting to what is within you often requires a very externalized External, physical yeah. experience. So mm-hmm. kind of talk through that a little bit. What is... how. how yeah, what is that story? Uh, how do you experience that? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I typically describe myself as a very embodied person, like as though other people are not. I don't know. I, I'm a, an instinctual, gut-oriented kind of person. Um, I would say when I'm in my everyday, you know, at work or whatever, like I know something's off when I feel like something is just punching me in the, in the gut. Mm. And so I'm a very gut oriented. Um, I listen to it. I learned to tune my ear to listen Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. you know, the instinctual self. Um, but what's interesting is that I, I can most readily access that voice 
when I am embodied, either, you know, even when we're walking, Michael and I, you, we love going on walks mm -hmm. at night because there's something that comes out in the movement. You know, we, we say, you know, we make the road by walking yeah. and there's something that comes out in the movement. And so even today I was riding my bike between meetings. It was a hundred degrees outside and there was a moment I thought, I'm going to have a heat stroke out mm -hmm. here. And yet somehow like there was a spiritual experience of connecting with, I think everybody has a different name for it. For mm -hmm. me, I call it true home mm -hmm. there's a sense of connecting with it's a deep integrity of self mm -hmm. uh, i experience it in the sauna too in other places but i think there's um, an embodiment it's like i'm getting out in the external world to be able to connect with the internal world um yeah so but i think you know for you it's very different yeah yeah i mean i would say the need to pull away from others from the external uh, is how I uh, connect with what's inside. I mean, we can we could define this based just solely on you know Enneagram language as mm -hmm. uh, you as an eight and me as a nine, and the, and how easily I mean we kind of fall into those pretty stereotypical lines there with those those Enneagram types. But um, I I oftentimes cannot um, access what is happening within me if I don't have time to mm -hmm. disconnect? And it's not just loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. Henry Nouwen uh, in um, the book Reaching Out talks about this. There's a very different, there's a real difference between loneliness and solitude. Mm -hmm. And um, solitude requires a certain level of liminality, a certain level of intention, and uh, so for me, a big, the big practice for now, about a year and a half, has been walking. Mm. Um, walking helps me to, uh, uh, walking individually helps me to uh, kind of go in. Uh, I walk the same route, and I have mm. for about a year. Yeah. Uh, and I don't even have to think about where I'm going. My body just kind of has it memorized. So in some ways, yes, it's very embodied, but it's also like autopilot embodied. Sure. It's like yes, the the car is driving, but uh, but uh, Ron Burgundy has <laughs> left the steering wheel and she's kind of chilling out. Okay, so let me ask let me ask yeah. you a question. <laughs> that's, an Anchorman, that's an Anchorman that's an Anchorman two reference. I don't know if anyone saw that, but oh, let that, me bring us back. I'm gonna say this: that scene in Anchorman two, I laughed. To Which the, one are you talking about? Where they uh, he sets the RV to oh, autopilot. Oh no! I cried. I wept. I <laughs> I, wept. I actually thought I was going to injure myself. Yeah. No. Okay. Let's move okay. on. Okay. So when you are on these walks, mm -hmm. what is happening? Are you praying? Are you like what? Like what is happening internally for you that that's mm -hmm. a con a point of connection for you? Actually, it's interesting. Oftentimes, I'll listen to a podcast. Mm. So. I, I kind of contradict myself immediately because I'm actually listening to other people talk. Interesting. Alone. Alone. You're listening to people talk alone. Alone. <laughs> but their conversation serves as a mirror for me. Hmm. It serves as um, almost like permission. There's like they give out tons of permission slips and over the course of the conversation yeah. so that I can maybe just... Uh, experience a sense of freedom in thinking what I need to think, mm. feeling what I need to feel, and uh, and stepping into that. And I oftentimes on my route, I'll end the podcast about 10 minutes before I'm done walking. 
uh, just because that's the time. It's not intentional. I'm not mm. pious like that. Mm. But it, it'll just... Oh, be, I know. Yeah. The podcast mm-hmm. will end, and then I'll just be walking, and I'll just, like... I'll just find myself pro- just, just sitting there you know, processing that a little bit. Yeah. So you're not praying? No. I mean... Yeah. I mean, we can get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a distinction here. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about... Um, the strangeness within the parts of us that maybe need to come out mm-hmm. um, and the distinction between that and, you know, the traditional, um, I need to go pray. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe we want to jump into that. Do now. it. Okay. Um, so let's talk about these strange parts or these strange ones within ourselves. So mm-hmm. uh, a tool that has been revolutionary for me um, and I didn't even know I was using it when I started, probably 2011, uh, is this tool called Internal Family Systems. If anyone studied psychology or, you know, been in a counseling program, you've likely uncovered this. Uh, But Internal Family Systems, IFS uh, uh, is the abbreviation, was developed by a a psychologist named Richard Schwartz. He uh, essentially took this idea uh, that people come from a family structure, i.e. A, a, an actual mom and dad, mm-hmm. uh, actual siblings, actual grandparents, and a lot of their issues in life are because of those external relationships. Mm-hmm. Internal family systems theory suggests that those relationships actually also uh, exist within, within us. Yeah, And so it's not just that we have an internal mother voice and an internal father voice. Hmm. Um, we have a, a whole host of voices uh, and parts that uh, live within us that we have to engage with. And to put it very simply, uh, Richard Swartz, uh, Swartz, Schwartz. And I cannot get laugh. What's wrong with me and last Schwartz. name? Frazier. Uh, Richard Frazier. <laughs> Frazier. Frazier. Um, Develop kind of three. You could you could say there's three different kinds, uh, three different kinds of parts. One would be your managers. Uh, the other is your firefighters, and the other are your exiles. I won't go into a lot of detail here, but essentially, what's important to understand is that Schwartz identified exiles to be these parts of us that have been cast off we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about shadow they're the Mm -hmm. parts of us that exist in our shadow Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes deeply in our unconscious Mm -hmm. we're unaware that they're even there and they exist as these parts that we really need to integrate that were integrated in us at one point but have been cut off um, and exiled locked away and the managers and firefighters have similar but different roles in essentially keeping the exiles away Hmm. because the exiles like any kind of shadow material threaten to harm our relationships uh disconnect us from community Hmm. and so the managers and the firefighters kind of have to be there they they there's a beauty because they actually protect they have protected us but as we get you know as as we become adults and move into relationships in life when the exiles are cut off, we actually lose vitality mm. and the ability to mm-hmm. form uh, strong connections at work and in our families and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and to say this, um, the oftentimes the, um, this, this idea of internal family systems 
really is about listening to the parts that start to act up, right? Mm. So Schwartz would say we we need to listen to what might be the loudest voice. And so when you talked about what is deepest mm. under there might be sadness, um, it sadness may go through a number of filters to to the uh, to where it is externalized. Mm-hmm. So we have to do that work to kind of drill down and understand what's actually underneath the behavior or the uh, the lashing out or whatever that might be, what's actually all the way down yeah. deep. Because that's probably where your exile lives. Yeah, well, when I think about um, my inner exile, I think about uh, the almost like loss of innocence, right? There's a sense of, like the the manager, the firefighter. I, I when I think about the manager, I'm like, this is my best customer service face. This is how I adult and get mm-hmm. through life. These mm-hmm. are not bad things, mm-hmm. right? But there's like a survival mode. I think that that came online yeah. at a certain point to protect that you know that innocence, whatever name you want to give mm-hmm. um, to the exile. And I think what's interesting for me is thinking about you know once once I. I feel like I, I came to a place in my life where I befriended that exile. I, I feel like I changed as a person. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I, I never, you know, that, I, that I've um, stopped cutting that part of myself off. I feel like there's a lot of work that I continuously have to do to keep that part of myself from being exiled again. But I feel like once, I, once it happened, once I got a taste, once I, once I heard that inner voice and listen to it and tune my ears to be able to hear what it sounds like, it was unforgettable. Mm. And I feel like it changed me as a person because I suddenly had a, a vision of my life lived alongside uh, befriending this inner exile and I, and I suddenly didn't want to live without her, right? There was this like congruence and deep integrity of coming alongside and being like, oh, I, I shoved that to the wayside, I neglected that. Mm-hmm. I, it was this forsaking that happened in order to survive, but in, and you know, it maybe got me to where I am today and that's mm-hmm. great, yeah. but like, I don't have to live like that anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean this, the whole, uh, I mean, cultural movement over the last number of years around deconstruction. Mm. I think what we, one way of defining what that is, is really breaking down the structures that have divided us. Mm. Um, that are often very religious and so you mean internal structures yeah yeah I mean they're external structures that we've internalized mm-hmm. yeah, right yeah. Um, so external structures say around a very moralistic Christianity that then becomes internalized and we don't need the Bible to shame us we'll, we do, we'll it do just it fine just find ourselves. ourselves yeah yeah okay so how did you get in touch with that work that there are these internal parts of you, like what, what did that process look like for you? Yeah, so I remember when we were in seminary, um, I was the best boyfriend anyone <laughs> could ask for, right? That's funny. Um, yes, that's how we remember that's humorous. it. That's uh, So uh, just to go above and beyond, I started going to counseling. You got and, to. Uh, so I, my counselor, I remember maybe one of my first sessions uh, asked me, you know, it was kind of, in hindsight, I can see she was trying to understand my trauma. Mm. And she essentially was able to help me pinpoint what age that I was kind of stuck in. Mm. And we identified that I was probably around 12. And I remember her asking me, 
you know, what do you think about this 12 year old Michael, this little Michael? Mm. And I, my, my visceral reaction was, I hate him. Mm. I wish he would just let me live mm. and stop, stop getting in the way of everything and stop derailing my relationships. And it was probably less dramatic than this, but I just felt like mm. she looked at me and said, well, how is he going to do that if you don't teach him? Mm. And it was a moment where everything shifted. Mm. And so my work along with other things, was to start cultivating a relationship with this little Michael. And at first, it felt very odd. Like, she made me, you know, she put another chair in front of me, and so I talked mm-hmm. to this empty chair. I mm-hmm. think she might have put a pillow, like a, just a square, like, couch pillow, and it was odd. Mm-hmm. But then, as I did that practice, I actually had a dream. Dreams have been pretty active for me over in, in my life, and I had this dream where I was sitting at a piano and uh, in the dream I was actually standing behind looking at my adult self sitting next to my 12 year old self. Hmm. And we were playing- That's freaking crazy, I'm just gonna say that. And we were playing a piano and it was almost like this father-son look. Motif. Yeah, Uh like a father sitting next to his son playing the piano. And there's obviously this teaching element uh, to it because I don't even know. Maybe even little Michael was teaching, you know, adult Michael about the piano because I remember they were both playing. And that actually became for me this confirmation that, oh, there is actually work here for me. And this 12-year-old me is not just this icky, gross um, sense that I can't, you know, I can't move forward, but I can actually... um, section this part of myself uh, almost like a separate identity a separate entity and i can relate to it Mm -hmm. Um, it's not cutting it off and sending it away that actually is a very common christian practice Mm -hmm. or evangelical practice i should say to say oh well this is a bad part you should cut it out your eye causes you to sin throw that thing out you know it'd be better worked right Mm -hmm. you actually need to cultivate a relationship with that that part and so for me, it was suddenly I had this, almost like I had a son. Hmm. Before we were we ever had kids, I had this, this child that I was now teaching, and I had to learn not only how to love this child, but how to like, get you know, be firm and give boundaries mm-hmm. um, when the child wanted to act up, like yeah. to actually come alongside and, and parent in a way, uh, or parentalize <laughs> in, in a way that gave him boundaries and space to feel but also like a container for that and Mm -hmm. not just to sprawl out and feel you know uh, uh, a sense of boundarylessness something I didn't really have I as a kid I you know I could feel whatever I wanted in the privacy of my own room no one would know no one would really care Uh, so that began that that work for me and and I remember probably a few years ago doing some work around these managers and firefighters, starting to, you know, look at uh, these voices that would come online that were, were almost felt condemning hmm. uh, and letting them speak, not talking to them. Because this is, 
this whole idea of externalizing the enemy and in, in evangelicalism, like, oh, that's probably the voice of the enemy. That's the worst thing. <laughs> because what it ends up doing is it, it robs people of um, a lot of relational energy mm-hmm. by uh, calling managers and firefighters uh, enemies evil. and yeah. evil or whatever. So demonizing. It, and, and demonizing mm-hmm. them it actually robs them of the the real gift that they bring, which is, first of all, they've protected. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my managers and firefighters have protected me. Yep. Um, they're just being overly protective mm-hmm. now. And so if as a, you know, adult Michael, maybe sitting in the place of self, can hold a conversation with a manager of a firefighter who you know comes in every time I screw up and you know, berates me and uh, uh, masochistically just kind of beats me into the ground. If I can give that that firefighter manager a voice, hmm. um, then, like you were saying, Liz, I can get beneath maybe what feels like rage, and maybe I can get to the anger, maybe to the fear, and then ultimately to that sadness, something there that underneath. sense of loss yeah. uh, that I've experienced. Yeah. I was thinking um, one of the resources for me that's been helpful kind of in this work and this this journey of befriending my inner exile is Women Who Run With The Wolves, mm. uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And it's interesting that you kind of point back to, I can just like place myself in that seat with Kathy Mylans, okay. your counselor. Your counselor, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how she was able to kind of pull that out of you in a way like kind of like te- like I, I feel like she was gentle and firm but had a way of getting to it right and inviting you into something and in women who run with the wolves I think you know um, Estes writes this a properly shaped question emanates from essential curiosity about what stands behind questions are the keys that cause the secret doors of the psyche to swing open. Mm. And I feel like that's what happened in that space. Mm. There was a swinging open of the door simply with a, a single curious question asking what, what is happening inside mm. of you and, mm-hmm. and drawing that out and allowing you to kind of um, almost like externalize mm-hmm. what has been internal mm-hmm. and to make sense of that. Uh, I think about how important it is to begin with a curious question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. One uh, practice that has helped me a lot that I I I don't understand it very formally. It's a very union uh, practice, but it's called active imagination. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, essentially, active imagination is essentially uh, yeah like. Pulling forward uh, uh, maybe what is actually happening in your life. Uh, it, I found this on Wikipedia. This oh, definition. So it's okay. pretty solid. So it's up to date. <laughs> you got a, you got as many people. People can write whatever they want. So you know you're getting the best information. Okay. So you know that's how you know you're getting the best stuff. Uh, this is uh, this is pretty reliable. I thought it was a, a good way to encapsulate active imagination. It says. Uh, Active imagination is a meditation technique wherein the contents of one's unconscious are translated into images, narrative, or personified as separate entities. 
It can serve as a bridge between the conscious ego and the unconscious. So, I mean, this is exactly back, you know, in seminary when I was started counseling, this is exactly what that was. Getting to know little Michael mm. was uh, this way of personifying mm-hmm. an entity within myself that felt like it was just uh, symbiotic with Michael, mm-hmm. but actually was allowed me to uh, pull it out, look at it, turn it, relate to it, ask it mm-hmm. questions. Um, Almost have proper relationship. Yeah. yeah. And then, and not just like, um, you know, ask it a couple questions, but like ask it open-ended questions. Mm. Michael, look, you know, Michael, what are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And then just sitting with that and listening, mm-hmm. you know, and then not judging what might come about. Yeah. Uh, That's hard to do. That to me was incredibly, incredibly profound because I gave voice to this very young, uh, stunted part of myself who had never been able to express what he was feeling and suddenly mm-hmm. an adult was asking him what he was feeling yeah. and there was life that could kind of flow out of that mm-hmm. so uh you know oftentimes and i want to speak to this a little bit uh, often this these practices maybe we develop them in a counseling or therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. but i would say 99 percent of people who've grown up in church or uh you know had this expectation that uh, the communion that you're having like that would be with God. Mm. And God is defined as this external being. God is out there. God is out there. And to be honest, the God of particularly how we see God uh, personified in the Old Testament is incredibly moralistic. And we see this, too, in the New Testament. There's a great book that I won't get into by Murray Stein called Bible is Dream. And he uh, has a, oh, you're inc- getting into it. A, a, an incredibly heretical point of view that essentially God uh, uh, goes through his own initiatory process of uh, you know, maturing, right? And so what you have is a very egotistical God in the Old Testament that be, becomes very benevolent. And, oh, I see. Anyway, I get it. I follow it. You get it. Um, but for those of us who've grown up in that, um, we feel almost cut off mm-hmm. from accessing these parts because, well, prayer is synonymous with this warring way, right? You hear people mm-hmm. kind of talk about prayer warriors. <laughs> right. So what ends up happening is prayer becomes a defense mechanism to, uh, to defend against the gates of hell, so to speak, right? The internal gates of hell. And then what gets labeled as being part of hell uh, is very, very from, subjective. From the evil one. Yeah. And so oftentimes what it is is it's anything that's not pure, okay? I mean, we can get all into all kinds of garbage here. Mm-hmm. But managers and firefighters and exiles are not pure. Mm-hmm. They're not parts of us that are put together Mm-hmm. Um, they're not parts of us that are, uh, there, there are certainly parts that are often shadowed and shamed. Mm-hmm. And so the idea around prayer is that, uh, we oftentimes have to cut parts of ourselves off rather than integrate and start to have a relationship uh, with those, with those parts 
evangelicalism is you know kind of designed uh, to to kind of dis- dissect and cut off and so what we end up feeling is almost narrowed so far down that we cut off the ability to even connect internally or mm-hmm. externally because it feels like there's really no way forward. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think about I think about the God out there that I'm praying to, quote unquote. If we talk about um, prayer as a vehicle, <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> joking earlier. Prayer is a vehicle, and my words are the passengers getting yeah. out of that vehicle mm-hmm. to talk to yeah. God. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's yeah. a weird metaphor. Yeah. Anyways, it's not a good one. It's, <laughs> we're making fun, but I don't think it's. It's not across. archetypal, yeah. as you would say. Okay, so it's it's weird that we you know we have this journey of like God is out there, mm-hmm. and then at some point developmentally God is in here. I'm like you know, God is in my heart. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, looking back on my life, I'm like, am I sure I wasn't talking to myself? Yeah. Because I needed to. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe there was an inner communion that needed to happen with those parts of myself. And those were the conversations I was having. I mean, mm-hmm. I I was a, you, you remember me in seminary. I was yeah. a, every morning I would journal yeah. for a long, that's, that's why you were attracted to me. Well, she was going to be a missionary. I was the joke was on me. <laughs> Um, oh man! Well, it, this is needed, right? It's mm. needed the developmental process. Developmentally, yeah. God needs to be outside of us. Mm-hmm. Developmentally, honestly, it reminds me of how a, a, a child grows. Right. Like mom and I are the same. Mom and I and are then, the same. And then mom is out there. Yeah, and then it becomes mom is out there, um, and. Uh, the feminine is out there, right? For me as a man, uh, the feminine is mom, right? Um, the masculine is dad. And the king is dad. The queen is mom. Uh, all of these archetypal uh, parts are externally present. Mm-hmm. And part of the human developmental process is that the, the discovery that these are actually parts of ourselves. All internal. And so when it comes to God, uh, I think what evangelicalism often does is it, it, it requires that people stay stunted developmentally with a God that is purely external. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may give lip service to a God that lives in our heart, but still there is not an integration with self. Yeah. And so God is still... Um, uh, a solo entity mm-hmm. that lives somewhere mysteriously within us um, and obviously any other entity that comes along that maybe doesn't fit our image of God that we've cast uh, needs to be dealt with right. oftentimes firmly mm-hmm. and with war and boundaries right uh, however this idea really becomes like the, the cap kind of comes off and now uh, understanding prayer this way, this active imagination or this way of communing with the inner parts uh, becomes really a way of deep creativity. Mm-hmm. Now prayer becomes something that can be conversational, not making sure that we're talking in the right direction, sure. but that we're simply talking, mm-hmm. that we're hearing uh um, ourselves from within and we're asking questions back mm-hmm. uh, that that is actually to me um, you know the way the way of integrating the uh, another thing that I think is important to note is 
um, just around external um, companions. Hmm. So since we lived in Oregon, uh, the symbol of the deer has been mm-hmm. for me a companion, a companioning symbol. Uh, so anytime I see a deer, I just uh, assume that to be really the, a symbol of the presence of the divine, mm-hmm. uh, the presence of God. Uh, there's a reason for that. There's been all these moments where deer have appeared kind of crazy. spontaneously totally crazy. at crucial moments in very unique ways. Mm-hmm. And oh, you're a mystic in that way. What's that? You're a mystic in that well, way. Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so for me, that is a, that is a, a, a symbol an external companion that reflects something internally, uh, but it kind of lives outside of me. So I don't see deer, like I don't have a uh, a deer within that I'm communing with, but mm. when I see that deer kind of outside, I'm like, ah, oh, there is, it reflects something back mm. uh, that might be, that might be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about this, the strange creatures that journey alongside us and have something mm-hmm. to share with us and yeah. a reflective of the internal world in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 So Liz, as we wrap up, mm-hmm. um, what are maybe what's a, what's a final reflection that you have around this? Yeah. It's interesting to be landing, <clears throat> I think on the, on the topic of prayer in some ways, because I, I'm not sure that we started here. Uh, and knew that maybe we would end here. I think there's um, a sense of freedom, I think, that I'm feeling. Mm. You talk about permission slips, um, but a sense of an ability to just engage my inner life. It reminds me of that, you know, as legend has it, Rublev's Trinity icon that used to, you know, the three members of the Trinity sitting around the table, and Rublev, when he created this icon, you know, uh, there was a mirror on it so that the, the viewer would um, see themselves as the fourth person mm-hmm. around the table. And yeah. I think I think for me, like those are the, the images that draw me in, to, in deeper to the divine life that is, okay, whatever it is that I'm holding here, whatever stranger that is within that I, you know, if I can just peel back all the layers and actually sit with it and, and get to know it and, and really companion it, I think there's a sense of hospitality and welcome. And to me, that's, that's honestly how I would define what prayer is, mm-hmm. is the welcome of those strangers within. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. what I'm sitting with. Yeah, I, this movement from hatred to hospitality, mm. I, I like to use that word. I feel there is a, there's a need for us to identify what within us we hate Mm. and not be afraid to use that descriptor Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that verb or whatever I don't know Uh, it's a verb it's a verb good Mm -hmm. Uh, to hate something within ourselves there was a time I hated little Michael yeah and had I continued to hate little Michael um, he would have never grown up and I would have never grown up uh, ultimately, and, and 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 my relationships would be in shambles. Mm-hmm. Um, how are these parts that we hate going to grow if we don't teach them? Yeah. And uh, and so having the courage to listen, to ask questions, to hold space, 
for the parts of us that we hate mm-hmm. uh, is the way forward. So I would say I would offer a, 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 a practice would be to just uh, identify mm. these uh, the ways that internally we feel hatred towards ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a, a masochistic uh, impulse to beat ourselves up. Mm-hmm. Uh, most likely what you're dealing with is a part that needs to be befriended and loved mm-hmm. and integrated. Well, you're talking about asking the essential question. Yeah. That w- what are the parts of myself that I have not allowed to be present here and why? Mm-hmm. And invite those parts to just be welcome, to have a seat at the table. Thanks for listening to the Profaned Ordained Podcast. You can find us at innerworkcommunity.com. Catch you next time.